Anyway, when Gary asked me to do this, I said, the only thing I know about Zephaniah is that there's three chapters to it. It's, it's one of these really fun ones that there's two and two-thirds chapters of like, here's what's coming at you, and then about like seven verses of, but there's hope. So it, it's a challenge. Um, we've been in this series for the last, about a year now, that we've been in this series where we've been going through the Bible book by book, each week speaking on a different book. Um, but before we got into this series, it was, for me anyway, it was very different that like when Gary was on sabbatical, if, uh, if I was asked to, to speak, it was basically Gary's instructions were always, Whatever's, whatever God puts on your heart, share. That, that's what he always said. Well, this is very different because this is kind of like being in school. Because this is like an assignment. And I think in this series, if I remember correctly, this is my third time speaking within this series. It was First Kings, Proverbs, and now Zephaniah. Um, and it's a, for me, it's a real challenge. I don't, I don't have the seminary background that Pastor Gary or Pastor Evan have. So I have to really like dig in and study for this stuff. But it, it's also really rewarding because it makes you really learn it. Because if you're going to speak about it, you better at least try to, to get a clue what this is about. Um, lately, I, I don't, I mean, it's just something God's put on my heart. But lately, I've been dealing with this complete change in perspective. Um, I've really been looking an awful lot at what people knew when. Okay? So Zephaniah prophesied um, in the 7th century B.C. Okay? So looking at things, what he knew at that point. Um, in, I have ninth and 10th grade Sunday school, and we've been reading the early accounts in Luke um, leading up to the, the birth of Christ. And it's, it's easy for us at this point. We have the benefit of the entire New Testament. We have Jesus' teachings, we have Paul's letters, we have um, John's account in Revelation. We get the whole picture. We get to look at the whole picture. They don't always get that. They didn't have that. Even the people, even like Zephaniah prophesying what was coming, he didn't have the whole picture. Um, If you you know the account in Luke when... um, Zechariah, I knew I was going to mess this up if I switched Zephaniah and Zechariah, but I'm trying not to. Um, when when Zechariah is the high priest, and, and he's in that one time a year when the high priest in the tabernacle goes into the Holy of Holies to receive God's word that year, and the angel appears to him and says, your wife, who has been barren her whole life, is, is beyond childbearing years, she's going to have a baby. And, and of all the people that should have known the scriptures and, and known the, the lesson of the coming Messiah, you'd think the high priest would have this one pretty much slam dunk, right? And he was kind of like, yeah, right. You know, as a result, he was struck mute for all the time that Elizabeth carried the baby that was to become John the Baptist. It's, it's great to think, you know, like you, you, you know, you think good of yourself and you think like, I'd, I'd be like Mary. I'd be like, yes, Lord, I got this. I'm pretty sure I'd be like Zephaniah, like what? Seriously? 
you know, we don't we don't know how old specifically they were, just that they were, you know, she was beyond childbearing years. But this was another person that didn't have the advantage that we have now of knowing the whole story of Scripture. You know, um, obviously this information was there in what we call the Old Testament because after Jesus was born, these wise men showed up, so they were studying the Scripture. It made sense to them. Zephaniah just didn't make that connection. He didn't get that. Um, So as we look at Zephaniah, we need to remember he did not have the whole picture. He did not have the entire resurrection story to look at. Um, Zephaniah was a contemporary with Jeremiah. They both prophesied prophesied the coming destruction of of Jerusalem, which was by um, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. They both prophesied this coming destruction. But Zephaniah, he includes a line that that's in there that that makes it a bigger thing than just the destruction of Jerusalem. He actually talks about the coming destruction of the entire world. And it, it makes me wonder that, you know, is, is he, was he being revealed to him a little bit of what we later read in John's account from Revelation when he talks about the entire world and not just, you know, this immediate coming destruction. Um, Zephaniah lived seven centuries before the birth of Christ. And this is before, when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes into, the, um, into Judea and, and takes away the, the Israelites back to Babylon in what we think of as the exile of the Israelites. This is before that exile. Um, verse 1 tells us that Zephaniah was a prophet during the, the days of King Josiah and that he was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. It's, it's, he's the only prophet that we get any genealogy really at all. Um, and the, I think the only, the only significance to, to being told like what his lineage was is if he was of royal blood, it would have given him a clear access to the young king. And remember, this king that we're talking about only only came in as a child. So this gave him an entry point to that court. As I studied Zephaniah, I came to understand that there were the two dominant themes in it, judgment and deliverance. And the judgment part will come out probably more strongly because as I said, out of the three chapters, two and two-thirds are probably on judgment. Um, as we read in Zephaniah 1, chapter four, um, verses 14 and 15, he graphically describes the terror that is coming in what he refers to as the day of judgment. He said, great is the, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thickening darkness. This coming day of judgment is described in in terms of being in the near future. In verse 7 there, he says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. 
The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Judgment will come soon upon Jerusalem and Judea. Remember, we're still dealing with the split kingdoms of the north and the south, not the, not the single um, kingdom of the, of the Israelites. And Judah is the southern kingdom. It will also come upon the nations surrounding her, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ethiopians, and the Assyrians. There is also mention of a great and final, more distant judgment that will come upon the whole earth, as I referenced earlier. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. If this prophecy is literally fulfilled, it must mean the coming end of the world as we know it. This reminds me of what John wrote in Revelation 8, verse 7, when he tells about the angel, the first angel sounding the trumpet. In verse 7 of Revelation 8, he says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned up. As Zephaniah tells us in in, uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Judgment will come upon the foreign nations because of their arrogance and their oppression of God's people. In chapter 2, in verses 8 through 10, he says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. Those are two things you don't want to become like. A land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nations shall possess them. They shall be in their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. There will also be judgment against these people for their arrogance and their self-sufficiency. Zephaniah says, In this exultant city that lived securely, The city that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes her by hisses and shakes his fist. The reason for the judgments of Judah are revealed in in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1. When Zephaniah says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, who have turned back from the following of the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Milcom was the Ammonite 
Ammonite god. It was to Milcom, if you remember, that Solomon erected an altar in Jerusalem in honor of that Ammon, of his Ammonite wife, whose son Rehoboam succeeded him on the throne. That was a big part of Solomon's downfall. The reasons for divine judgment can best be summarized this way. God will judge those in Judah who practice pure paganism. God will judge those in Judah who mix with the worship of God with the worship of other deities. God God will judge those in Judah who completely reject and turn away from the faith of their fathers. God will judge those who choose to identify with the heathen rather than the people of God by their dress. God will judge those who practice violence and deceit. God will judge those who refuse divine instruction and who have ignored his warnings. Judah should have learned from God's judgment of others, but she did not. God will judge those in leadership who have abused their authority and forsaken their stewardship. God will judge those who presume that God is indifferent about their sins. God will judge those who put their trust in anything but him. These are God's righteous judgments against Judah. God had warned that divine judgment was coming upon Judah, upon the surrounding nations, and upon the entire earth. But if God was about to judge all men, how would his covenant with Abraham and his descendants be fulfilled? When God told Abraham in in Genesis 12, and I will make of you a great nation, how is that to be fulfilled if it's to, to destroy everyone on the earth? Paul tells us the answer to this in Romans 9 when he said, And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand upon the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled through this small remnant of his chosen people rather than through the entire nation. This remnant would be composed of the righteous, not only those of Judah, the Israelites, but also from among the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verse 3, we read, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. It is Zephaniah 2.7 that tells us that the remnant will be included, uh, will include those from Judah. When he says, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. In the house of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For their Lord, the, the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. That the Gentiles would be included among these righteous This is a new concept. Again, remember this thing about they don't have the big picture. The Israelites have been told they were the chosen people throughout their entire existence. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles are coming into this picture. Think how confusing this probably was for them. But that the Gentiles would be included comes to us from chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seek the prey... For my decision is to gather nations, 
to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation and my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that of all of them they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. There are several things that set the righteous remnant apart from the corrupt in in the world that they live in. Those who are part of the righteous remnant, they seek God and they obey his commandments. Same as today. Those who are part of the righteous remnant are also humble. I know I read this before, but this is important. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps this may allow you to be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. Those who are part of that righteous remnant are righteous in their actions towards others. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be any found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Reminds you a little bit of Psalm 32, doesn't it? lay down in green pastures. Zephaniah summarizes the hope, the deliverance of this righteous remnant, that their sins are forgiven and they are cleansed of their sin. They will be delivered from and through divine judgment. They will eventually be rescued from the hand of their oppressors. They will enjoy security and peace. They will enjoy being in God's presence as he rejoices over them as the objects of his love. As I studied the book of Zephaniah, I've been forced to reconsider what I thought of as the relationship between divine judgment and divine blessing. I guess I've always thought of them as kind of opposites and without a relationship. Maybe we're all a little bit like this, but for me, it's like I like to think of judgment as something that has little to do with me and a lot to do with my enemies or those who kind of stand against us. Um... Um, I think of God's blessing and his salvation as mine, um, unrelated to judgment. But I've come to the conclusion that divine judgment and divine blessing are, are closely interrelated. You don't get one without the other. In the first place, God's judgment is, is a means by which he delivers us from our enemies. Second, the divine judgment purifies the righteous remnant. If we're constantly dealing with those around us that are wicked, how are we delivered? Finally, God's judgment is the means by which God brings blessing our blessings about. When God removes the wicked, it is so that he may come and dwell with us. Several really important truths are in these verses and need to be understood. First, it's not just the heathen who need deliverance from the guilt and the penalty of their sin. It is all men. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible, one we many of us know very well, is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that Paul doesn't specify anybody when he says that. He says for all. Notice he doesn't exclude anyone. 
including himself as a Jew. He's in Rome and he's speaking to them. He's not specifying anybody else as a sinner. He's not excluding everybody else for all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike. Second, it's, it's God who saves men from their sins. It's not we who work harder, who strive to do better. It is God who produces righteousness in us. And third, our sins are forgiven, and we are made righteous because God has passed judgment on our sins. How is this possible? Zephaniah doesn't tell us, because as I said earlier, he doesn't have that whole picture. It's not revealed to him. He doesn't have the picture that we have of the birth of Christ, the teachings that we get to read of his, of his crucifixion and resurrection and his ascendance into heaven. He doesn't get that part of the picture. But we know it. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of history. Um, that God poured out his wrath on his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who took our sins upon himself, who bore the penalty that we deserved. It's It's by this means of divine judgment that we are saved and that we become righteous. The judgment was borne by by Jesus Christ for us. All those who acknowledge their sin and their guilt and trust, trust in Christ's saving work at Calvary, in their place they have forgiveness of their sins and assurance of eternal life. Since Zephaniah's ministry overlapped with that of Jeremiah, he served as a second witness whose testimony confirmed the words of Jeremiah. We have Zephaniah to thank for underscoring the fact that while God's judgment for sin will be swift and it will be severe, he also saves a remnant, thus assuring Israel of their hope for the future. What should our response be to Zephaniah and what he speaks? He tells us, first, we are instructed by Zephaniah to be silent. He says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. What does it mean to be silent before the Lord? It may mean that we cease making excuses for our sins, or that we stop denying that we are sinners and deserving of God's wrath, facing that reality. Silence is also an expression of reverence. It's to be, to be silent before God is to show our reverence to him. Second, we are instructed to seek the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, remember, I've said this before, seek the Lord, all you humble. You who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Those are important words that we should have written on our hearts. I take this as a call to repentance for those who do not know God as well, for those who do know him. Men and women should prepare to meet their God. My friends, the, the, the great and final day of judgment that Zephaniah talks about is still in the future, but it may not be far off. We don't know. The bad news is that each one of us is a sinner, deserving God's judgment. For the, the very judgment described in, in uh, Zephaniah, The good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, not to die for his sins, for he was the sinless lamb of God. He didn't merely suffer at the hands of the Romans. He endured the judgment of God that should have been ours. 
Then he rose from the dead and ascended to God and his Father in heaven. He offers salvation to any who will trust in him. Those who reject him must endure the eternal wrath of God. That should be a terrifying thought. Zephaniah says, therefore you must wait patiently for me. We're even instructed in this age to wait patiently but expectantly for God. Fourth, the righteous are to to joyfully worship God in the light of the coming day of the Lord. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 17, Zephaniah tells us, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a great promise to write upon our hearts and to to remind ourselves every day that verse 17 is our memory verse for this week. The Lord your God is in your midst. Even now he's in our midst. The mighty one who will save us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. In those days of turmoil when things are just driving you crazy, Think about that. He will quiet you by his love. What a great thing to claim. The prophecy of Zephaniah ends with a call to worship. The prophet is not speaking of the worship in some future day, though that will surely take place. He's calling for worship now. God's people should worship because that day of judgment and the times of blessing are certain to come. God's people are to worship by faith, knowing that God is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his promises, whether they are promises of judgment or promises of blessing. He's a covenant-keeping God. Even in the most difficult times, the future of the righteous is clear and it is certain. How much more should this truth be a comfort to us living as New Testament Christians, having that whole picture, reading the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, reading the revelation that John brought to us from the visions that he was given. We can look back upon Calvary while they looked forward to it. How much more should we enter into joyful worship knowing that the day of divine judgment is coming? That as we step forward for judgment and we will all be judged, that the Lord Jesus Christ will say, that one is mine. Are you his? Do you live each day in victory knowing that you're his? If not, please consider the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer. In this Christmas season, as we think of gifts both given and anticipated, receive the greatest gift ever offered, the most costly gift ever purchased, the gift of eternal salvation through Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, in this first Sunday of Advent, 
as we enter into the Christmas season and we think about you coming as a baby, we, ha- we cannot even begin to fathom what that entailed, that you would leave your place, your throne in heaven, to enter this world as a, as a human, to enter this world as a baby, helpless and crying, relying on, on Mary and Joseph to, to take care of you and, and just all the things that were going to go on. And every day you endured and you grew. You taught us by your words and by your deeds. You were the sinless Lamb of God. You were absolutely perfect. You're the only one that ever walked this earth that was perfect. And you laid down your life for us. We, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around that, Lord. But we can claim it. And we do. Help us to, to leave the bondage of sin behind and to live in victory. To live as your child. To live for you. To rejoice and to worship for that coming day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.